0: over a closing like Paul gives us in the book of Colossians that we've looked at. Uh, It's easy to pass over uh, this section as incidental and maybe trivial, but God has inspired it to be written, and so for that sake alone, we should look at what Paul has to say, as he often closes out epistles in much the same way. Brother Kip, if you could turn... Turn it down just a little, there's an echo. Thank you. So in the New Testament alone, Paul will mention over 100 people by name. In Romans 16, he mentions 26 people alone. And in Colossians 4, you will count 10 people he mentions by name. And often when he does this, he uses a compound word in the Greek with the prefix soon. And then another Greek word to follow. Soon. It's often the English word fellow. Fellow laborers, fellow prisoners, fellow workers, fellow soldiers, fellow servants. He uses this prefix three times, beginning in verse 7 to the end of this chapter. Fellow, soon, means together with. It's a partner, it's an associate, it's a comrade, it's someone that is sharing in an activity. We use the word fellow in the English to mean something similar. When you have a common interest, a common bond, a common pursuit, a common goal that you're after, you might call that person a fellow, a fellow worker, a fellow in a shared interest or activity. So Paul is going to make it clear here, when he's seeking to advance the kingdom of God, he needs many, many fellows to help him in labor. Paul is not a lone ranger. We often see his name in the Bible as a prominent figure, but he makes it clear as he mentions these friends, these fellow workers by name, that he depends on them, he looks to them, he commends them for how they assisted him in the advancement of the gospel. So making verse 11 kind of the center portion of this closing chapter where Paul mentions justice and says these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God to advance the kingdom for the kingdom and so using that word fellow I'm going to title this message in the form of a question what kind of fellow are you what kind of fellow are you so we'll look at five or six different types we'll group some of them in one category And look at some of them individually. The first thing we look at is Paul mentions faithful fellows. Tychicus in verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow, a fellow servant in the Lord. We'll look at Tychicus, Justice, and Aristarchus in this first group. Now all of these people could be considered faithful fellows, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, But he mentions Tychicus as a faithful brother, a faithful fellow. Now faithful means constant, continuing on a course of action, loyal to something or someone, the kingdom of God, and loyal to Paul. To be steadfast, resolved, determined, steadfast, and to be reliable. Just someone you can depend upon. So I think Paul would say all of the people he mentions... Typically, in a positive way in the New Testament, here, ten people. Some will be rather negative, but most, for the most part, positive. These are faithful brethren. It's required of a steward that a man be found faithful, constant, loyal, dependable. Are you a faithful fellow this morning? I'm not using fellow as as a male comrade, but just a brother or sister in Christ. Are you faithful in the kingdom of God? Are you consistent, unwavering? Are you resolved? as a faithful fellow. Well, first note that Tychicus is faithful in the small things. Look at three things Paul had him do. First, he delivered the epistle to the church of Colossae. It is believed he delivered the epistle to also the church of Ephesus and to Philemon. Philemon, the church was gathering in his house at Colossae, it's believed. Now he's faithful in the small things. Tychicus is the mailman. He's the FedEx guy, or he's the UPS lady. He's just going to deliver the mail. What a small thing! But what an important thing for Paul. He's beloved. He's faithful. He's a fellow servant. And the word minister, diakonos, is usually translated someone that just waits on tables. You know, God uses the bus boys and the bus girls to advance His kingdom. So we must be concerned about the small things, not just the big things. Years ago, when I was a member of the Cincinnati Church, I went back to the back area of the building where the Baptist Bible Hour was broadcast, often live. Elder Bradley would get into his office. There was a desk there with this impressive radio microphone, really big, and he would go live on Sunday nights, year after year, week after week. Saw his office, went back. In the other room, there were computers and a few of the sisters that did the work of taking in the mail, Answering emails, can't remember maybe at the time there was no emails. Mailing cassettes, that's what you listened to at that time. Book orders, various things, had a small staff. And I thought to myself, you know, I'd, I'd like to help serve in the Baptist Bible Hour. They had the Baptist witness that was written, it would go out once a month. So I asked Elder Bradley, I'll never forget it. I looked at him in the eye and I said, Elder Bradley, is there a way I could serve you at the Baptist Bible Hour? I'll never forget his answer. He said, well, Yes we actually could use someone to take out the trash. I thought, that's not what I was thinking. I thought, can I write an article? Can I answer an email? Can I do something? Just take out the trash. Now, you think he might have been joking? He wasn't. See, just to take out the trash on time was a huge benefit in advancing the gospel because somebody needs to take out the trash. So somebody needs to just take a trip It was a long trip. Just take the trip and hand it over and let them read the epistle. Now, are you the kind of fellow that's faithful in the small things? Are you just looking for big things? Well, the Bible tells us if you're faithful in that which is little, then you'll be faithful in that which is much. Because the same kind of heart that's faithful in the small things will be the same kind of heart that's faithful in a much larger, bigger responsibility. I always appreciate it when somebody just locks the door and turns out the lights here at the church. See, it's the small things. Do you overlook the small things or do you recognize the small things? Because Jesus Christ, who's faithful to you, He always recognizes even the small things. You see, there's no task for which you're doing in the kingdom of God, for the glory of Christ, that God does not take notice of. So Tychicus was faithful in a small thing. Secondly, Paul said, I just want you to tell him how it's going here. Now that's a small thing. I don't know if he wrote it down and took notes. Maybe he just said, I'll read what Paul told me to say. But when he got there, he delivered the epistle. And then he wanted to tell the church by the direction of Paul, tell them how it's going for me here. So he was faithful, he was reliable to deliver the epistle. Then he was faithful and reliable to give them the information that Paul told Tychicus to transfer Just a small thing. And then the third thing, which is a small thing, it's a needed thing, but it's often really a big thing. He says in verse 8, And whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. Are you an encourager? Are you a comforter? This is a multitasking word, I'll call it. It has many different nuances, but one of the, the main centerpieces of this word is to encourage. Are you an encourager? Or would you be more like a person that tears down? Do you build up or tear down? Do you edify or do your words criticize and tear down? See, what we really need in the church, the small task, which is really a big task, is the small task of just being a faithful encourager now what is Tychicus going to say to encourage the church of Colossae because the the information he's delivering is not very encouraging is it Paul is in prison that is not an encouraging message he's the premier apostle he's the beloved apostle so you go and tell them that I'm in prison how is that encouraging And sometimes when we see the word comfort, we think that means just tell people what they want to hear. You know, I, I like the word comfort. I think it means make me feel good. Maybe even make me feel special. Give me comfort. Make me feel easy. A lot of times people choose churches on that basis. They want to hear a message that comforts them, maybe not in the right way. How was the message of telling the church of Colossae all that's going on with Paul to declare and make known unto you all things which are done here? Paul's in prison. How is that encouraging? Well, the first thing, they're going to tell the reality of what Paul is doing or what's happening in Paul's life. To comfort and encourage, we don't ignore the reality of what's going on. Sometimes people will comfort and try to overlook the reality of what a person's going through and try to say something that has no value. Things are going to be better. Tomorrow. How do you know that? Paul, you're going to get out in prison. Ultimately, he didn't. He was beheaded. I know things are going to look up tomorrow. Well, it depends on what you mean by that. I know you're going to get out of the hospital soon. You don't know that. That's not comfort. Because that not, is not reality. The reality is Paul is in prison. We don't know if he'll get out. Now the other set of uh, circumstances, or reality I'll call it, that needs to come alongside of the reality of what's happening in Paul's life is the reality of God. Yeah. Right? If you're going to encourage someone's heart, we don't ignore the reality of what's happening. That never makes anybody feel good. As if the doctor is going to ignore the fact that you have cancer by overlooking it and saying that you're really Okay? That is not comforting and that is not encouraging. No, a good doctor is going to tell you the bad news, but then hopefully he has some good news. And I say hopefully because a human doctor may not, but the great physician always has good news for your trouble, your affliction, and your trial. So Paul would make this known, particularly in Philippians chapter 1 where he would say, I want you to know that the things which are happening to me have fallen out rather to the furthest of the gospel. So yes, I'm in prison. I've been changed to this guard. But I want you to know what God is doing in my circumstances while I'm in this condition called prison. You see this also in the letter to 1 Thessalonians or the Thessalonican church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2 where Paul sends another fellow called Timothy. He's not mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, but he's mentioned in chapter 3 of the next epistle in order. He sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer. Timothy was a faithful fellow. In the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So Timothy is going to be an encourager. He's going to comfort them. So he wants them to be stable. Paul sending Timothy on this task. And He wants them to be stable in such a way that it brings encouragement concerning their faith. Now, what's the difference in comforting your heart and comforting your faith? Nothing. If your heart is encouraged and comforted, your faith is encouraged and comforted as it relates to the reality of who God is and what God is doing in your prison, your affliction, or whatever you may be experiencing. And so to be a faithful brother or sister in the small things, which is a big thing to be an encourager, what's that going to look like for Timothy? Verse 3. I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. That no man should be moved by these afflictions. There's the first reality. The church is in great affliction according to chapter 1 verse 6. They're in mega affliction. So, Timothy doesn't go there and to try to ignore the reality that something that is not good is happening. It's called trouble, affliction, and persecution. So, if he's going to comfort them and encourage them, he he is not going to ignore that reality. So that no one would be moved by these afflictions, that's one reality. Here's the second reality that produces the encouragement and stability. We don't know exactly what Tychicus said, but if he's going to comfort like Paul would tell Timothy, then he's going to include this encouraging word. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. This affliction that's real, that's hard, that's painful, that's difficult, that's a reality in your life, it's an affliction that you've been appointed to by a divine appointment of God. Both sets are reality. Both are true. But the reality of God's divine appointment is the message that brings stability to be rooted and grounded and that gives our souls encouragement when we may be hurting greatly. How can knowing that your afflictions are divinely appointed by God be a comfort to your hearts? Well, verse 13, when Paul prays for the same church, I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, To the end that God may establish you unblameable in holiness before our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the purpose of the divine appointment? It's your holiness, that you might be a partaker of His holiness. And if you're a partaker of God's holiness, you're going to be a partaker of His joy. Because the aim of holiness is to love God and to love your neighbor. And the love of God is what brings us contentment and peace and joy. So Tychicus, given three small tasks, which are really big tasks, but on the the human level, just really small, he delivers the mail, he tells them what's happening with Paul, and he comforts their heart. And I think according to the pattern of what Paul said Timothy to tell the church at Thessalonica. I'm in prison, but I want you to know God is at work, and He's advancing the gospel, and He's got me here for a purpose. And understanding that purpose helps us to comfort one another when we're in those circumstances where it's hard to see. The darkness may be hovering thick, and so we need, beloved, to be faithful fellows just in the small things of bringing a word to one another. We need to bring the gospel. We need to hear the gospel over and over again from one another to encourage our hearts to be stable, as we learned in Colossians 1. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you've heard, and what is God going to use in your life so that you will not be moved away from the hope of the gospel, and you'll be grounded and settled, rooted and built up? He's going to use you just in the small faithful ways when you just bring a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, a word of grace to one another. Are you a faithful fellow? And then the second person we look at is justice. Now Paul will use the English word comfort again, but it's not the same Greek word. Verse 11. A lot of Jews in that day were called uh, Jesus by name, and he probably renamed himself Justice out of honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, because that name took on a special meaning when Jesus came. So he's called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only, which I think it points to the people he stated thus far as being Jewish uh, by birth, first birth, but spiritual Jews by second birth. These only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. All right, here's the second person who's faithful in something small. The word comfort here means to relieve, to alleviate. When you alleviate something you help lessen the burden of suffering or you take away a deficiency that is present. Now we don't know exactly in this context how justice was a comfort. He alleviated something in Paul's life. He removed some deficiency We do know in two other places when this word is used, what Paul meant. Philippians 1.25, he mentions another faithful brother, Epaphroditus. He said, but I suppose to send unto you Epaphroditus, my brother, my companion in labor, is the same Greek word for fellow worker. Here it's plural, Colossians 4, singular. In Philippians 1.25, he's my brother, he's my companion in labor, he's my fellow worker, Fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. So what happened? The church at Philippi sent Epaphroditus on an 800-mile trip to where Paul is in prison in Rome. If you could drive it about 19 hours, no cars. Six weeks. Six weeks. Now, I don't know if he was married, family, He had some kind of family because he was on the earth. He left them all behind. I don't know what his job was. I don't know what his income was. But he left that behind for a period of time. He travels 800 miles to go see Paul. Now this must have been a really big task. I mean, he's going to do something really big here. Paul said, what he came to do was minister to my wants, my necessities. Which likely meant this. Brought him some clothes. Maybe another pair of shoes. If you need another set of eyeglasses, if you wore those, brought him that. Maybe some food. Maybe some Tylenol, some medicine. In prison, Paul had needs physically. And this church sent Epaphroditus 800 miles as a companion in labor, as a fellow worker, to do a very small thing, so it seems. Just to deliver to Paul things he needed to keep him going in prison. Would you be such a faithful fellow? Or would you say, that that's such a small thing? Now, of course, we live in a time where such necessities can be obtained in a very quick way. You can even have them delivered. But have we used that convenience to become kind of complacent to our needs to one another and service to each other? So Epaphroditus did a small thing, but to Paul it was a big thing because he was a fellow worker unto the kingdom of God. Paul needed this. And people supplied his necessities so that he could keep writing as he did from prison. The second one is in 3 John. And this man is called Gaius. And so in 3 John 5, or verse 5 of 3 John, only one chapter, John would say this about Gaius. Beloved, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. So Gaius is doing something here, and what he's doing, he's faithful in it. He's constant, he's loyal, he's reliable, he's dependable. And he's doing it not only to brothers he knows, but to people he's never met, strangers. Which, that is, these brothers and strangers have borne witness of thy charity before the church. So these brothers, these strangers, they go to a church and they say, Let me tell you about Gaius. Let me tell you how faithful he is. Let me tell you what he did. What did he do? Whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, or in a manner that honors God, thou shalt do well. Because that for his name's sake, they, the brethren and the strangers went forth taking nothing of the gentiles verse 8 we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers of the truth now what big task did gaius do to be a fellow helper of the truth he was helping advance the truth uh, the truth of god when an evangelist when a missionary when a preacher came in town he gave him a bed He fed them breakfast. He ministered to their necessities. And John says, We ought to receive such, and in so doing we are being fellow advancers, workers, and helpers of the truth of the gospel. Who would have thought that would have any impact? Just sharing some food and lodging. Note also that these did it for the namesake of Jesus Christ. And they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. Now here's a little caveat here. Beloved, if we're going to send people to evangelize the nations, we do not take money from unbelievers. Or at least we shouldn't. They wouldn't take money from the pagans. Why would we be asking unbelievers to help us advance God's cause when we would ask God? When we would ask the members of the church, we'd ask the kingdom of God to supply the wants without doing raffles and things like that for unbelievers to supply what God alone supplies. So we see that this small task, not only of Tychicus, but also of justice, was simply delivering the mail comforting hearts meeting needs inviting people into your home and Paul and John say this is a fellow worker this is a fellow servant this is a fellow helper this is a companion in advancing the kingdom of God now are you this kind of fellow now when I ask that question I know I can answer by saying I know some of you are but this is a call for us to make progress In being fellow laborers, fellow helpers. Then the last person in this category of faithful fellows is a man by the name of Aristarchus. What Paul says about him is that Aristarchus, in verse 10, my fellow prisoner saluteth you. And that's a very short statement about Aristarchus, but fellow prisoner soon together with he's in prison. But it's not likely he's there. The same reason Paul is there. Could be. We don't know for sure. But it's also likely he's there simply because he's traveling with Paul. It is not safe to travel with Paul. You have to think hard about traveling with Paul. Because where Paul ends up, you will end up also. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul is at Ephesus, an uproar, a tumult is stirred up by Demetrius, who was a maker of silver shrines to the goddess Diana. And he was making a lot of money with all the other tradesmen. And they saw that Paul's preaching was turning people away from the goddess Diana and therefore turning people away from his profitability. So in a big uproar, they seized who? Aristarchus. And dragged him into the theater. And in that tumult, he could have lost his life. But he was spared. The next time we see him... And apparently he's a man of Thessalonica, according to Acts 20, verse 2. We find him in Acts 27, verse 2, where Paul enters a ship from Andridium. He's going to Italy because he appealed to Caesar in that kangaroo mockery kind of courtroom where now he's on his way to Caesar. And it says, according to Luke's writing, And there was one Aristarchus that was with Paul. Which means Aristarchus was on the ship with no food and didn't eat for days. Aristarchus was on the ship when they went into the storm called Eurycladon. Aristarchus experienced the shipwreck on Miletus and Aristarchus makes his way to Rome and now he is a prisoner with Paul. So Aristarchus represents the faithful fellow in the hard things. That's not an easy thing. Now, I would admit delivering the mail, that That's easier right now that requires faithfulness but that's a bit easier than traveling with paul would you be a faithful fellow to stick with someone a faithful friend in the church in a very hard time see the answer to that question is to ask yourself how committed are you in the easy times see i could tell you well i think i think i'd remain faithful I think I'd be committed to them. But the answer to that question is your commitment now in the kingdom of God to other faithful brothers and sisters. That's going to tell you what you'll be in the hard times. Because you don't become a different kind of person moving from the easy times to the hard times. Paul will make this point about faithful men in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You'll remember when he says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus... And the things you've heard of me, Paul to Timothy, Timothy, you teach the same thing to faithful men, which shall be able to teach others also. And here's his conclusion about faithful men. And we're going to apply this to faithful men and women. He's talking about ministers there. We're going to make a broader application. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Why do you need to be faithful to teach others also? Because there's going to be great opposition from false teachers and false brethren which will not endure sound doctrine. Which are supposedly in the kingdom of God. But they won't endure sound doctrine. It's going to require hardness, Timothy, for these faithful men to transfer truth to the next generation in a culture we're living in now. Because there's going to be great opposition. So faithfulness is required. Beloved, cultural Christianity is dying in the 21st century. Shallow Christianity is going to die. We're either going to go deep in the truth of God or we're going going home. We need to be rooted, grounded, settled, firm and steadfast in the supremacy of Christ. And in His faithfulness to us. Your faithfulness is dependent on the faithfulness of Christ and He will be faithful to you to the end. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Faithful is He that calleth you who will also do it. Whatever God has said He will do, He will be faithful to the end. Our faithfulness is hanging on His faithfulness and He will never let you down. So Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner in a hard thing He's a faithful brother because he's enduring hardness with Paul as a fellow worker to advance the kingdom of God. Some of you will be called on to endure hard things. But all of us are expected to endure such things for the glory of Christ in a way that we're resting in him, in a way that we're being constant, loyal, dependable. On what basis? He's constant, He's loyal, and He's dependable. And we're trusting and resting in His grace. Be strong in grace. Teach faithful men who will teach others also. And what does grace produce in our faithfulness? We endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Okay, the second thing we look at, not only faithful fellows, but fervent fellows. These are all F's, just makes it easy to remember. We're going to skip around a little bit. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, which means he's part of the church at Colossae. This is the brother we were introduced to in about the 6th or 7th verse in chapter 1. Presumably they heard the gospel through Epaphras. And he was likely one of the pastors at Colossae. He's one of you, a servant of Christ. He salutes you, always laboring Fervently for you in prayers, so that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Verse 13, I'm in Colossians 4. Because I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Epaphras is a fervent fellow on behalf of those in the church at Colossae. Laboring fervently is a word, we get to the English word, agony. We've heard this word before, agonizomai. Agony, the the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. You know, you've seen the skier, if you're old enough, that he just wipes out. Some of you older people have seen that. Agony, agonizomai means to contend, to wrestle, to compete. It's an athletic term. So Paul uses this term in a a few places. He would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11, Fight the good fight of faith. He would say concerning himself in 2 Timothy 4 and about the 5th or 6th verse. I have fought a good fight. Same Greek word. In 1 Corinthians 9.25 he would say, He that striveth, he that contends, he that races, he that trains, trains for the mastery, but he's temperate, he's self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain an corruptible crown, we do it for an incorruptible. Using the metaphor of an athlete running in what is now called the Olympic Games, the the striving, the training, the pressing forward, every muscle straining to obtain the victory. That's the word picture that Paul gives us. Now the question I have, and maybe you have, is how do you pray that way? (laughs) You know, you ever thought that? Now here's the picture I get. I picture Epaphras in his living room, and he's just wrestling being like he's with a demon. He's up on the table, hit the table, things are being thrown across the room. He's wrestling like a guy wrestling on the mat in a competition. That's just the thing that comes to my mind. Or maybe like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings with Bal- Balmog, Balmog, whatever his name is. This, thank you. This big demon with fire, you know. He's wrestling him in this, this, this cave that goes down to abyss and hits the water. And supposedly for days he wrestles he comes out victorious. That's the image I get when you think about an athlete straining and striving, and we're supposed to do that in prayer. But is that really what Paul is saying? If it is, I'm going to guess nobody in this room has ever really prayed fervently. But if we just take the metaphor of an athlete, I think there are three things Paul could be teaching us about Epaphras and how we could be fervent in prayer. Number one... The athlete that wrestles and contends has a real opponent and a real threat. Do you know you have a real opponent and there's a real threat? I think Epiphras knew that. And so his praying was fervent. You know the athlete that thinks the other team is not good enough? Not a real threat. What happens? He loses the match. This athletic term, I think, is telling us, first of all, there's a real threat. Who is it? Well, it's the demonic world, first of all, isn't it? Ephesians 6.10 Finally, brethren, be strong with the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. The schemes. There's a real opponent and there's a real threat. What's the threat? You may not stand. Or language means Nothing. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might stand, which means if you don't, you might not stand. Now, look at what Epiphus is laboring for that you might stand, perfect and complete in all the will of God. There's a real opponent. And having done all to stand, stand, therefore. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. There is a real opponent and there is a real threat. And when you're praying, With that in mind, then you're starting to pray fervently. Now, it doesn't mean your body is moving around and you're doing like that athlete that's straining, but there's a certain spiritual straining because you know. Epaphras knows there's a real threat at Colossae. And so he's engaging in prayer because prayer is the means, part of the means that can remove the threat. The athlete knows there's a real threat of losing. Not just as a real opponent, right? Athlete goes to the match, goes to the game. says, well, there's somebody that's going to be there that's going to compete against us. I know there's an opponent, but he's no threat. Again, that's the team that loses it big. What's the threat? Again, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. If that's not a threat, meaning if if... If we're not on guard, if we're not prayerful, if we're not putting on the armor of God, then it stands to reason we may not stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now what does Epaphras mean by this? To stand is to be firm, it's to be stable, it's to be standing by faith. It's that we're continuing grounded and settled, and we're not being moved from the gospel. Which means there is a threat that we could be moved away from the gospel. We need to be rooted and being built up in Christ. The trees that are not rooted are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Psalm 1. To stand connecting with the will of God simply means to stand in the pathway of God's will and not moved away from the gospel. You go back to doing your own will again. So in all the will of God doesn't mean you do every conceivable thing that God could will for your life. It means you're on a pathway of doing the will of God. And standing by faith means the fruit of that faith is you're continuing on the pathway of doing God's will. So the threat is getting off the pathway and not standing by faith. And you move back to living life according to your own will, or perhaps even now, you're on that pathway. where your life is consumed with one thing. It is to accomplish, it is to achieve your own will, your own desires, your own pleasures, and what you want for your own life, and Jesus Christ is no part of that scenario. So Epaphos is praying like an athlete that's resting against a real opponent, and there's a real danger involved. Because you have need of patience so that after you've done the will of God you might obtain the promise. When does the promise when is the promise realized? After living on the pathway of God's will which is why we need endurance, patience and perseverance. So I think that's the first image of uh, laboring fervently is that Epaphras understands this so his prayer is fervent. He understands the real danger. Do you understand the real danger for people in your life, and your own life? Is there anyone you know that's moving away from the will of God? Is that a real threat? According to Epaphras, it, it was. Next, an athlete never stops fighting and he contends to the end. At the, at the higher levels of Athletic competitions that Christmas Day, Thanksgiving Day, they don't get any time off. I mean, they're training, 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 and it is something to do. In season, off season, they never stop training. Epiphras, one of you always laboring fervently. Always. He doesn't take any time off. He's always engaging in prayer. Now, I'm the kind of fan that I typically declare the game's over when things start going bad. Just ask my family. You know, My favorite statement. They could quote it. You don't know, have to do it. I'll do it. That sealed it. That's over. It's over. Forget it. I remember years ago, I made the boys go to bed one night. I said, it's over. It's finished. It's late. Go to bed. I had to go wake them back up because it started changing. <laughs> Epaphras is not that way. He's the athlete that even if there's one minute left in the game, he's given it everything he's got in prayer. He keeps going. He keeps praying. Now we we see an example of this with Jacob who wrestled with an angel at the Ford Jabbok when Esau with 400 men was coming to meet his brother. And the last word that Jacob heard about Esau was... When I see him again, I'm going to kill him. Jacob has two wives. He has a big family. He has servants. He has camels, asses, oxen. He hears the news. He gets a strategy. He divides into two companies. He says if he slaughters one, maybe the other half will get away. He sends a series of gifts to Esau in droves, in separation. One after one. Telling the same thing. This is a present from your brother Jacob. Maybe he'll have mercy. And then he sends his family over the stream where he is, and he's left alone at night. And that night, he wrestles. He contends with a man all night long. This man is an angel of the Lord, capital A. It's a strange wrestling match, and we know from Hosea 12.4, when Hosea interprets this wrestling match, he said he had power with the angel and prevailed, which means he had victory over the angel of God, which is believed to be... Uh, An epiphany of the Lord Jesus Christ. But strangely, is the point in time when he prevailed. So he's wrestling all night. The angel didn't prevail over Jacob. Jacob didn't prevail over the angel until the angel touched the hollow of his thigh. The thigh joint, he, he simply dislocated his leg. Now, you and I both know if you're in a wrestling match and your leg is dislocated at the thigh joint... That sealed it, (laughs) right? It's over. It's done. But at that moment, Jacob prevailed over the angel. Now what is God teaching us? What about Epiphras, In that he labored fervently. It was through weakness that Jacob gained the victory. It's out of weakness we're made strong. The fact that Epaphras always labors fervently means out of his weakness he's made strong, or his prayer is made strong with God. Because at that moment, Hosea says, Jacob had power with God and prevailed. And at that point his name was called Israel, Prince with God. We at no other time perhaps express our destitution, our weakness, and our deep need than when we're praying, burdened for one another, with prayer that keeps going and that never quits. Because out of that weakness, God hears, God answers. And when it's in, in, in accordance with God's will, He answers that prayer. Through weakness. God appears in His glory in Zion and builds up Zion. How in Psalm 102? mentioned many times. He will regard the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their prayer. And so Epiphras here, his fervent prayer is a fervency out of his weakness, out of his burden for the church and his desire that they stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Which is the third observation we see now is what is it that the athlete really, really, really wants? Well, he or she wants to win. You want to win the championship. You want to win the game. Verse 13, For I bear him record. Now, this is one of the ways Paul knew that Epaphras labored fervently, like an athlete, in prayer. Maybe he heard him praying, but this is the, the record, this is the testimony, that he hath a great, Zeal for you. Zeal can be translated ardor in pursuing something or passion. Zeal, enthusiasm, passion. An athlete has a passion for winning. I mean, that's all I can think about. Yeah. In fact, when, when that's not the case, the, what will the coach say? You don't want it. They want it more than you. Yeah. Nobody wanted it more than Epaphras. And Paul bore record of that. I bear him record. How do I know he's, he's praying this way? I bear record like an athlete. He has a passion for it. Now, this is my question. Maybe this is your question. How would you know he has a passion? Again, is he, is he rolling all over the room? I said, well, that's a passionate prayer. I don't know what he's praying, but he, he's... He's really going at it like an athlete. No. Is it because he's yelling out? And uh, No. Well, listen to this in Romans 10, 1 through 3, where Paul uses a similar statement. He bears record to someone, and they have a zeal. He would say, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved, because I bear record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So he bears testimony of the Israelite nation in general, That they have a zeal. that This zeal is not from God. How do you know that? Because of the context in the next verse. For they going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of Christ. God does not give a passion to people to reject His Son. And that's exactly what they're doing. What it means is they have a zeal Godward. They look pious. They have the law. They read the law. They look like they're zealous for God. But Paul says what? It's not. Now how do you know, Paul, that this zeal toward they have this zeal toward God? What's the record? Because they're going about to establish something. In other words, the zeal that's in the heart, that's a misdirected zeal, that's a wrong zeal, is expressing itself in what they're doing to establish their own self-righteousness. The detail that they would go to, to tithe, mint, anise, cumin. The rigidness to wash, as they did To establish their own righteousness. See, the point is, the record that they bore expressed itself in how it was lived out. All right, let's apply that to Epaphus. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal of God. So after Epaphus prays fervently and keeps praying that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, he says, Amen. And then he goes to work to accomplish the very thing he prayed for. Because an athlete can't just desire to win. I have a passion for winning. Well, let's go practice. I'm not going to do that. I just want to win. I have a real passion to play the piano. Well, let's go take lessons. No, I just have a passion. See, the passion expresses itself in the activity and the burden of the heart. Are you a fervent fellow? You may say, I have a passion for this church. I have a passion for this church to be a healthy church, a thriving church, a growing church, a discipling church. Amen, now, what are you doing? Well, if just the pastor would start getting passionate, or those deacons, no, you, you're the one. Paul bears record of his fervent prayer because his zeal starts expressing itself in how he's relating to the people he's likely pastoring. Somebody says, I have a a passion to have a a marriage that glorifies God. What are you doing? I have a passion to be the kind of husband God calls me to be. How have you worked on that? I have a passion to be the wife that God calls me to be. What have you read in the Bible recently? What have you done? I have a passion for this church to be a disciple church. Are you in a fellowship group? The fervency of prayer is bearing witness to itself when we say amen and then we go to work. Are you a faithful fellow? Are you a fervent fellow? I think in many ways you are. But in many ways we would all recognize we need to grow and to increase and to be more faithful in the small and the hard things and to be more fervent in prayer, burdened for the kingdom of God, burdened with a passion for God's name to be glorified. Because Epiphras's passion for the church to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God must be in harmony with God's passion for the supremacy of Christ in the preeminence of everything, because that's why He made Him head over the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He, the preeminent Christ, might have the preeminence and the supremacy. So we can't separate a passion for God's people in His kingdom and a passion for God's Son to be glorified and magnified. Do you have such a passion? Well, if not, we can be like Epiphras and find it in prayer. Asking God, God, would you make us the kind of church that stands perfect and complete in all the will of God? Because the threat, again, Paul said, This I say, lest any man beguile you with enticing words. Then he says, Beware, lest any man take you captive by philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ." For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete. That's a form of the word, to perfect and complete in all the will of God. He's laboring so they would understand the fullness that they have in Christ, and to be satisfied with Jesus Christ, so that they're not beguiled, led away captive, allured from the pathway of God's will, but that they would be mature, maturing Christians that are standing on the pathway of God's will. May God bless us to be a church that keeps growing to that end. Now, we only looked at about four people, so I guess we'll have to come back to this later and see what Paul would encourage us with with the other uh, people that are mentioned in this chapter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for putting such people in your word, people just like us who are common, ordinary people that have jobs, that have families, that have responsibilities, but yet in different ways you were using them in your kingdom to advance it. And Paul honored them as friends and as fellow companions, fellow laborers, fellow workers, fellow servants, fellow soldiers, fellow prisoners, because he could not have done what he did without them. And Lord, we as a church cannot do anything without all the body, with the different gifts You've given us to be faithful, to be fervent, to be fellow workers under the kingdom of God. So I thank You, Lord, for all those here for many years that have been doing just that. And I pray that You would increase that among us. Increase our disciples. Increase our prayer life. Increase our growth in the Lord. Gospel growth. And do it in a way that Christ is seen for who He is. And may we take one step closer just in this week of being more like Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We ask you all this in Jesus' name.